0: He's the fragrance of heaven, the man of unleavened. He's the song of the birds how sweetly they
1: Hello again, this is the Pioneer Broadcast, a non-Christian work for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm your host, John Clark. We are continuing our study of the Bible's answer to the most important question, what must I do to be saved? You hear it everywhere, everywhere in Christianity, on Christian television, Christian radio, Christian churches, Christian home meetings, among Christians in the street, Romans chapter 10 verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And this verse from the Apostle Paul's letter is used by Christians everywhere as a means of bringing sinners to Christian conversion, but that is not what Paul intended for us to understand from that scripture. I'll be back in a few moments to explain to you why Romans 10, verse 9, is the most abused scripture in our generation. Stay with us as we continue our search for the Spirit's truth concerning the question, What must I do to be saved? Stay with
0: us. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever the same. He's
1: my peace when I'm troubled, my sight when I am blind. The question is what must I do to be saved? And we must be careful about the answer because our souls hang in the balance. We don't want to shortchange ourselves by hanging on to a cliché or to an errant tradition when we must stand before God to give an account of ourselves. Clearly, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, has something to do with salvation. I mean, after all, it says, If thou confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And then he goes on in the next verse, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So, obviously, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 have something to do with salvation. But the meaning of these two verses has been misunderstood, and I'm persuaded inadvertently twisted by Christians due to neglect of context. And the neglect of context has resulted in a misinterpretation that has misled an entire generation. For example, do you know that in the context, that is in its proper setting, in its proper place in the Scriptures, the Apostle Paul here in Romans 10 is quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 30. Let me give you a little bit of the background of Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 is basically Moses' last sermon to his beloved Israel. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness now, they're on the border of Canaan's land. They're camped right across the Jordan River from Canaan's land, and God has told Moses that he will not be allowed to enter into the promised land. Now, this is very sad to Moses. He has looked forward to the opportunity, looked forward to the time when he could lead his precious, beloved Israelites across the Jordan River into the land of promise. He has even begged God. But because God has been displeased with Moses in a particular uh, situation, God has told Moses, do not even ask me anymore. You will die here in the plains of Moab on Mount Pisgah. And you must choose Joshua to take your place. This is a very sad story as far as Moses is concerned at that time. So Moses has been given the opportunity by God to sermonize to Israel one last time. And the substance of his sermon, this book of Deuteronomy, is that he pleads with Israel with all his heart. Please obey God when you cross over this Jordan River. And he reminds them of and gives them some last commandments for their good and their prosperity when they cross over. The whole book of Deuteronomy basically is Moses recounting Israel's history with God and telling them of their future with God. Now, God has let Moses in on a secret. God has told Moses that when Israel crosses the Jordan River and goes into Canaan's land and receives the blessing of God, that they will forsake God's ways. God has told Moses this, and he's heartbroken. He did not want to die. He, he wanted to go with God's people across the Jordan River to help set up the government and run it for a while so that Israel could learn how blessed they could be if they would just keep God's law. Over and over and over again in, in Deuteronomy, Moses punctuates these commandments that he gives Israel by saying, And if you keep it, everything will go well. He'll give a commandment and he'll say, keep it that it may go well with you, that you may prosper in the land that God has promised you. Now Moses knew. Moses knew that they were not going to keep the commandments of God. Moses knew that they were going to disobey God and be cursed by God eventually. But he labored with all his heart if by chance he might save some of them. That somebody in Israel would understand the value of the commandments of God. In chapter 8 in Deuteronomy, for example, and Jesus quoted from this chapter when he was wrestling with Satan in the spirit and the temptation in the wilderness, Moses remi- or pleaded with Israel in Deuteronomy 8.10, "...when thou hast eaten and art full." Then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Now he knew they were not going to be faithful, but nevertheless... As a testimony against them, if for nothing, no other reason, Moses spoke these words from the bottom of his heart. He knew that there would be some wise among God's people who would appreciate it, but this is the point in preparation for going over to Romans chapter 10. Moses was trying to get across to them the understanding that if they only obeyed the law which God had already given to them that they would be blessed. He's trying to impress upon God's people the truth that they already held in their hands all the knowledge of God that they would need in order to do well in Canaan's land, in order to please God, in order to die in peace and in faith toward God. He wanted God's people to understand that when God revealed the law to them at Mount Sinai, He revealed to them everything He wanted them to do in order to receive His greatest blessings. The law, you see, was not heavy and burdensome and hard to obey. It was just the opposite. It was extremely simple. The law that God gave to His people was contained in, in some, just as Jesus said it was, with these two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy strength and all thy mind and all thy soul. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said on those two, on those two commandments hung all the law and the prophets. If you do that, if you love God with all that you are, and you love your neighbors yourself, you will obey every commandment that God gave in His law. It will be automatic. The prophet Micah, much later, centuries later, said to God's people, He has showed thee, O man what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to walk humbly with thy God and to love mercy? That's all that God required of His people in the law. The law was good and simple. The worship rituals of the heathen were cruel and heavy. It included child sacrifice. It included acts of immorality. But not God's law. It was beautifully simple and clear and good. And Moses is pleading with God's people, Don't fall victim to envy. Don't envy the heathen. If you will just obey God's law... You will be blessed and you will... What they must do to be saved is just obey the law, you see. Just obey the law and you will be saved. Now, when we come to Deuteronomy 30, Moses is nearing the completion of his sermon. He knows that his last few words... He's come down to his last few words that he can say to God's people before God takes him away. And you can hear his heart breaking. You can see the tears on his face. You can feel the earnestness in his spirit in Deuteronomy 30:15 when he says, "'See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil.'" in that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish "...and that you shall not prolong your days upon the land where the, thou passest over Jordan to go possess it." Now, earlier in this chapter, Moses says the words that Paul quotes. And we begin reading in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. And this is the commandment that he set before them, the way of life. He said, "...for this commandment, which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off." Remember, they had had this law for forty years. And he, go, and he goes on to say this commandment, this law, this word of God is not in heaven that thou shouldest say who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. Why not? Why did Israel not have to pray that someone would go to heaven and bring back the word of God to them? Because God had already done it. He had already come from heaven down upon Mount Sinai and spoken his word to his people. They already had that. And Moses is pleading with them not to be lured away to want some mystery from heaven revealed. It had been revealed. He's talking to people who had had it for 40 years. Look at the next verse. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring the word of God, the commandments of God to us that we may hear it and do it? And why did they not need to pray that? Because God had already brought them across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai and given it to them. If Moses had been talking to Egyptians here, he would have said, you guys need to pray that someone will carry you over the Red Sea to where we are that you might hear the word of God. But he's talking to people who had already been carried over. You see, he's trying to persuade them to have faith in the God that is, that is with them. God's law is called God's word here. And Moses says in verse verse 14, But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. He's not talking to the Amorites or the Ammonites or the Amalekites or the Moabites. The word of God was not in their hearts. It was not near them, but it was in the mouth and in the hearts of God's people. For 40 years they'd celebrated the Passover. They'd known the judgments of God. They'd seen the provision of God in the manna and their clothes not wearing out. they had walked with God and their reputation for being God's people had preceded them into Canaan's land. And the nations of Canaan feared the approach of the Israelites. Moses was speaking only to God's people. And not only that, but to God's people who had known God for a long time. They knew His ordinances. They knew the sacrifices, what to do when they wanted to make a certain sacrifice. They had seen the power of God in their deliverance. They had seen the blessings of God and the curses of God. They had known God's order and His love and His care for them. Now, for Romans chapter 10, we're not going to neglect the context Paul is speaking here, and this is the most important thing in order to understand Romans 10, 9. Paul is speaking here to God's people, just as Moses was speaking to God's people and people who had known God a long time. Paul is speaking to God's people. Look in chapter 10, verse 1, the first verse in this chapter. The first word is brethren. And not only that, Not only is he not speaking to sinners, but he's speaking to God's people who had known God for a long time, that had been established in the power of God, who had known God's gifts, who had known God's power, who were filled with the Holy Ghost whose reputation had preceded them and gone around the world. In Romans 1.8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Romans 10.9 was not intended for sinners. It has nothing to do with sinners. It was intended for wise brethren whose faith had been heard of around the world. Now let's start reading in verse 5. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man that does these things or does those things of the law shall live by them. And isn't that what Moses said? I set before you today the way of life and the way of death. Choose life. You know what to do. It's with you. It's in your hand. You've heard the commandments. It's in your mouth. You know them by heart. Walk in it and don't be lured away. Now, when Paul goes on to verse 6... He's still quoting Moses, and that's the part that's often overlooked. We cannot neglect this context. Paul is still quoting Moses, describing the righteousness of the faith of the law. Not of the law, but the righteousness of faith, period, in Christ. And it speaks on this wise, "'Say not in your heart.'" The righteousness of Christ in you is telling you this right now. Do not say in your heart, Who shall ascend into heaven that is to bring the Messiah down from above? Why do we not? Why did the Roman believers not have to pray that the Messiah would come? Because, of course, he'd already been here. He'd already come and gone. And next, in verse 7, Or, the righteousness of faith is telling you this, Do not pray who shall descend into the deep. That is to bring Jesus or Christ again from the dead. Why do we not have to pray? And why did the believers in Rome not have to pray that Jesus would come back alive? Because he was already resurrected from the dead and ascended on high. You see, Paul is doing exactly what Moses was doing for God's people in Deuteronomy 30. Paul is reminding them, do not envy the heathen. Do not be lured away from the simplicity that's in Christ. Paul is not giving here any new commandment. Just as Moses was not giving a new commandment. He was trying to remind God's people of the beauty of the thing that they had and the sufficiency of the thing that they had from God. In verse 8 he says, but what saith it? And what is the it? The it is, it's the righteousness of faith. In verse 6, the righteousness of faith speaketh on this wise. Don't pray that Jesus will come. He's already been here. Don't pray that Jesus will come back from the dead. He's already risen. But what is the word of God? What is that righteousness of faith saying for us to do? He's telling us not to do those things. What is it telling us to do? In verse 8, he's still quoting Moses. Still quoting Moses doing the same thing that moses was doing verse 8 what says the righteousness of faith it says the word is nigh thee the law of god is nigh thee it's even in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith that we preach it says to you that you have what you need in order to be saved in the end The Holy Ghost is saying to everyone who's been baptized with it, Trust me. I know the way. I'll take you home. Listen to my voice. If you have the Holy Ghost today, listen to it. It knows how to take you home. And this is what the Holy Ghost is saying in your heart. Don't look elsewhere. Peter said it in his time to his people. He wrote it in his epistle. I'm going to stir up your pure mind, though you be established in the present truth. I'm going to remind you of our wonderful shared knowledge in the gospel so that we can rejoice together. Paul said it to the Philippians. He said in one place, I'm repeating myself, he said, but it doesn't hurt me and it's good for you. Well, that's what he's doing here in Romans. Paul is glorying in the shared knowledge, the communion of the Holy Ghost. He is telling them nothing new. He is telling them what the Spirit was saying to them and is saying to God's people everywhere. This is the Word. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. The Holy Ghost is teaching you. And this is it in verse 9. The most abused Scripture in the Bible because of the neglect of the context. This is what the Holy Ghost is saying to you right now. That if you, child of God, shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you, child of God, shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He's the if we who are born of the Spirit of God want to be saved from the coming wrath of God, then we must do what Romans 10:9 is telling us to do because that's what the Spirit of God is telling us to do. Everyone with the Spirit on the inside of them is being told right now to confess Christ with our mouth and believe, continue to believe, that God has raised Him from the dead, not to be lured away by the forms and fashions of carnal worship, but to confess Christ. If you who are not born again want to be forgiven then you must confess sin. Sinners confess sin and those who belong to Christ confess Christ. It's that simple. And it's misleading to tell sinners to confess Christ because they can't do it. They don't have the power. They don't have the spirit of Christ on the inside so that they can confess him. So you see, my friends, Romans 10, 9, by this generation, is the most abused scripture in the Bible because it applies to saints telling us what we must do to be saved in the end, but it is used telling sinners how to be born again. in ten nine in Romans has absolutely nothing to do with conversion. It's not speaking to the Egyptians or the Moabites or the Amorites. It's speaking to the people of God. It belongs only to the saints reminding them of one or two more things that we must remember to do if we want the whole answer, God's answer to the question, What Must I Do to Be Saved? I hope you'll join us next time. Until then, this is the Pioneer Broadcast, and I'm John Clark. For all of us here, non-Christian servants of the dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's my peace when I'm
0: troubled, my sight when I am blind. The fragrance of heaven, the man of unleavened, he's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly
1: they sing. As always, I remind you, to understand the question is to understand the answer. The question, what must I do to be saved, is not, what must I do to be born again, but it is instead, what must I do to escape the coming wrath of God? And on this edition of the Pioneer Broadcast, we'll be showing you what we're going to be saved from, and then the question will have more relevance than ever. Stay with us, won't you?
0: He's the fragrance of heaven, the How sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning creation. In
1: Luke 21, verse 36, Jesus said, Watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. So he encourages us to pray to escape the coming wrath of God, to escape the things that are going to fall on this sinful world. And we think that's wise counsel. But we should also pray not just to escape the things that, come, that are coming to pass, but to be able to stand before the Son of Man. That is to stand without being condemned in the final judgment. We want to be able to stand before Jesus, to give account of our deeds, and to be judged worthy to walk with him in white. And that's what Jesus was trying to get us to do. On this program, we're going to cover just a few verses that we haven't been able to emphasize enough along the way as we answered the question, what must I do to be saved? And then we're going to look at the subject of the second death. That is what we want to escape. Regardless of what we claim, what experiences we've had, what positions and titles we've had, if we end up in the lake of fire, we've missed it all, haven't we? And we'll be back right after this song that Sister Sandy Sasser wrote, titled, Jesus is the Answer. And Jesus is the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved?
2: Duh. the answer. Jesus is- is the answer, Jesus is the answer, knows my every need, loves and cares for me, Jesus is the answer.
1: Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, Jesus said, and we believe it. Before we get into the message on the second death, I want to point out some scriptures to you that we have not been able to emphasize enough along the way as we were answering this question. Because the Bible gives us so many different answers, so many complimentary answers to the question, what must I do to be saved? They complement one another. They don't contradict one another when we see them rightly. So let's look now in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, where Peter tells us that we receive the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. Do you see here that Peter is looking at salvation as being the end of our faith? We won't need faith anymore after we're saved in the end. We need faith now to overcome the trials of this life. Salvation is at the end of our faith. It is not at the beginning of our faith. As Paul said in Romans thirteen eleven, and we've emphasized this before, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. So every day we draw nearer to our salvation, and Peter refers to that when he says we, we receive the end of our faith in First Peter 1, 9. Earlier in this chapter... You may want to look at, let's begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we've been born again into a hope that is alive, a living hope, to an inheritance incorruptible. And to receive your salvation is to receive your inheritance. We haven't received our inheritance yet, therefore we are not saved yet. And this inheritance is incorruptible, it's undefiled, and and it fadeth not away, and is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. You who are kept by the power of God. So when when do you receive power from God to keep you from committing sin? To keep you in the right way? To keep you in the hard times? Keep you in the love of God. When do you receive power? Jesus said you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So you need the power of the Holy Ghost. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4? The kingdom of God is not in word, it's in power. And that inheritance, that salvation is being kept in heaven for you who are being kept now from committing sin By the power of God. One of the most terrifying phrases that Jesus ever spoke, we find in Mark chapter 10. When his disciples, after Jesus had preached the way of holiness so straightly, asked Jesus, who then can be saved? You see, the disciples during Jesus' lifetime never claimed to, quote, get saved, never claimed that. They knew different. Jesus knew differently. In Acts, I mean, uh, in Mark chapter ten, his disciples asked Jesus, "Who then can be saved?" "Who, Lord?" And Jesus looked at them and he said something that's very terrifying. He said, "With men it is impossible." In other words, there's nothing you can do to be saved. No man can be saved from the coming wrath of God. But it, thankfully, Jesus didn't put a period at the end of that statement. He put a comma. With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. So we must have a baptism that men cannot administer, right? We must have one that God gives us. We must adhere to a faith that men cannot teach us, that is revealed by the Spirit. As Jesus said, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he'll testify of me. We must belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. With men it is impossible. Even the best of men are altogether vanity, the Bible says in the book of Psalms. There is Vain is the, is the help of man, the psalmist said. There is nothing that men can do of a religious nature, including communion. The communion that we must have in order to be saved is one that Jesus purchased by his blood. It is not something that a bread factory or a cracker factory can provide. It's not something that a winery can provide. It is invisible and it is eternal. The communion that we are to have is eternal. It is not possible with men to give it. But it is possible with God, and in Christ He has provided it. It's a terrifying thing to think that there's nothing we can do, but it is a wonderful, refreshing to understand that God has done something and has given us the opportunity to partake in it. There's a verse also I wanted to point out before we uh, end this series, which next week we will do. It'll be the 12th part in this 12-part series of What Must I Do to Be Saved? And I want to emphasize as many scriptures that we just barely touched on along the way as we can in these last two weeks. In Acts chapter two, Peter quotes Joel when he said, "Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved." That's in Acts chapter two, verse twenty-one. But look at the time frame. Look at the uh, context of of that statement. Peter is talking about the end times. Look in verse seventeen, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. He talks about pouring out His Spirit. In verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven, signs in the earth. In verse 20, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord. And then he says, for, and, who, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's Peter saying here? What was Joel saying here? What does God mean for us to receive from this? In the context, we have to say that he's describing the end times. And if "...in the end times you have had faith to endure unto the end and are still calling on the name of the Lord when the sun is being turned into darkness, when the moon is being turned into blood, when the stars fall from heaven, in those days those who have had the faith to endure and still call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved from the coming wrath of God." He's not saying all whoever call on the name of the Lord shall be born again. That's not Peter's subject here. Jesus had a statement one time. He said, when the Son of Man returns, shall he find faith in the earth? Get ready for the long haul, brother and sister, because we're still going to be here a pretty good while. It is not time for the return of the Lord. And there are those who have been saying for years, it's any day now, any day now. How long are they going to continue saying that? How long before they realize they've misunderstood something? Jesus said, he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. But we need to be prepared for what we have to go through until the end. You've got to have oil in your vessels with your lamp. This phrase, though, in verse 21 of Acts 2, calling on the name of the Lord, is very important. It is a phrase that the Bible used with a particular meaning, and that particular meaning is the communication between God and his children, God and those that believe on him. The scriptures say in Psalms that the wicked call not on the Lord. And when a wicked person kneels down and prays to Jesus for mercy, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. But that's not what the Bible calls calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord is possible only for those who have been baptized with the Holy Ghost and speak with other tongues. Listen to, to the prophecy of when the Holy Ghost came. This is in the book of Zephaniah. He was prophesying about when God would send the Holy Ghost and, and uh, the Spirit would speak through people in unknown tongues. And in, uh, and in tongues that were known to those who listened, but they were unknown to the speaker. Listen to this in Zephaniah 3.9. For then will I turn to the people a pure language... And that happened in Acts chapter 2. Why did God do this, though? Listen. That they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. And if you have the faith to continue to pray in the Spirit, to continue to uh, call on the name of the Lord, communicate with your Heavenly Father until the end, you shall be saved. Jesus has promised it. And we can depend on that. So those are some of the scriptures I want to catch you up on this week as we continue our series on what must I do to be saved. But the main topic today is what will we be saved from if we are saved? We will be saved from, eventually, the second death. It is generally understood that the wicked after death are cast into the tormenting flames of hell. We understand that. But what many people overlook in their reading of the Scripture is that the final destination of the wicked Will be far more fearful than hell. The final and eternal abode of the dead, the ungodly dead, is so horrible and it's so full of unimaginable terror and torment that clear description of it eludes all human expression. Our words fail us. In Revelation, it's simply called the second death. This second death now is not hell, it is a place of such pain and terror that at the end, hell itself is cast into it. You see, hell is now used by God only as a holding pen for the unrighteous dead until the final judgment. After the final judgment, those who are in hell and hell itself are cast into what is called the lake of fire. And this lake of fire is the second death. Now the scriptures in bits and pieces all the way through, reveal frighteningly gruesome details of that second death which awaits those who are damned in the judgment. The psalmist said that they shall never see light. That's in Psalm forty-nine, nineteen. Now think about that. To be tightly bound forever, unable to die in a sepulcher of pitch blackness. The lake of fire burns with, with a flame that gives no light. You see, in hell people can still see. They can move around a little. The rich man in hell could cry out to Abraham for some mercy across that wide gulf that was fixed between them. He could speak. He could see, but not in the lake of fire. Three times Jesus referred to the lake of fire as being outer darkness. Now, Jesus knows what darkness is, and when Jesus calls something outer darkness, we ought to pay attention. Solomon glimpsed this miserable place and called it obscure darkness. Peter referred to the suffocating thickness as a mist of darkness. And Jude uses the phrase blackness of darkness. But all, this, all these different phrases are just trying to describe something that's indescribable because we have no such experience with such pitch black. Jesus suggested another dreadful element Beyond the pitch blackness, though, when he said, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. Now, the lake of fire contains no options. No one here on this earth can imagine it. It takes faith from God to believe such a place of such horror exists. There's no choice of movement. Bind him hand and foot. This is for eternity. No choice of movement. No choice of change, no choice to repent, no mercy. The most impressive testimony I've ever heard about this is from a sister who was given a vision of this place. It was with deep emotion she labored to describe the indescribable blackness. The deepest darkness in this world, she said, was a, had a gray tint in it compared to that darkness. It is an enveloping, oppressive darkness. And the individual there is overwhelmed with this feeling. It is final. And it is eternal. A person there is filled for the first time. For the first time with the sense of absolute hopelessness. The utter absence of all choice. You're blessed today to have choices in your life. Make the right one. An eternity of being bound hand and foot with no choice about anything, in thick darkness and unrelenting pain. The sister who tasted of this second death told of returning to her consciousness with an awareness that somebody was screaming in horrible torment there, and when she came to herself, she realized it was herself. And she wept a long time after she experienced that awesome vision. But there's even more to the second death more than the thick, terrifying blackness, more than the eternal absence of all choice, more than the terrifying hopelessness. For there is also in the second death the element of unimaginable torment. It's likened in the scriptures to being burned alive. To impress us with its seriousness, Jesus said that the torment was so great that even if we had to cut off parts of our bodies to escape that place, it would be very well worth it. Think about that. That if, even if you had to cut off your hands and pluck out your eyes to escape that place, it would be well worth it. It is a place of everlasting torment, everlasting punishment, where the fire is not quenched. The devil will be cast into that lake of fire, and it burns with brimstone, and he shall be tormented day and night forever and ever, according to Revelation 20.10. And then, following the great white throne judgment, death and hell itself, and whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, were all together cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. The heavens and the earth that exist now will be burned up. As Peter said, the heavens shall pass away with a fervent heat and a great noise. The works and the the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Where are you going to hide? Hide in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. You see, it is impossible with us to escape the coming wrath of God. It is impossible with us to be saved, but not with God. And his offer of forgiveness and cleansing from sin through the name of Jesus Christ is still being made. The Spirit's call, voiced by the ancient prophet Isaiah, has not been repealed. Isaiah said, "'Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts.'" and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God loves you. Jesus offers you hope of eternal life, hope of escaping the terrors of the damned, hope of escaping the second death. May God grant us the grace to realize the value of his offer, and to take full advantage of it, and to experience the answer to the question, What must I do to be saved?
0: He's the fragrance of heaven, the man of leaven. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorned. Forever the same, his name is Jesus. Forever the of heaven, the man of he's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing.
1: Well, Solomon said, to everything there is a season, and the season for this series is just about come to its end. Hello, I'm John Clark, and this is the Pioneer Broadcast welcoming you to the final segment in our series on what must I do to be saved. We have given hundreds of scriptures showing that the answer is to live a holy life before God. It covers all of life. There are no gimmicks, no rituals, no ceremonies, no formula. It is being led by the Spirit alone that will take any of us into the kingdom of God to live with Jesus forever. And he has made that offer to us and we accept it and pray to be found worthy to walk with him in white. Stay with us as we wrap up our series on what must I do to be saved with some scriptures that you want to hear.
0: He's the fragrance of heaven, the man of unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds how sweetly. They sing he's the light of the morning creation adorning he's Jesus forever the same
1: he's my peace when
0: I'm troubled
1: on this last program uh last in the in the series, the twelve week series on what must I do to be saved, I want to emphasize a few of the scriptures that we haven't emphasized as much as I would like because of the lack of time. The Bible gives us so many answers, so complete an answer to the question, "What must I do to be saved that we have been pursuing uh, all the avenues we could and I want to emphasize these beginning in the first chapter of Colossians and the twenty seventh verse, where Paul is touching on the mystery of the gospel which has been hidden from all the generations previous to Jesus, but now is made manifest to the saints. And this is it. In verse 27, he said, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I want to emphasize that hope of glory, because Christ in you is your hope of glory. Now, what if Christ is not in you? Then you have no hope. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians, the second chapter, beginning in the 11th verse. He reminds these Gentiles, Wherefore, remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, at that time, when you were just out in the world worshiping idols, of uh, believing in many gods, as most Gentiles did at that time, at that time you were without Christ. Now, Christ in you is the hope of glory. But they were without Christ. Christ was not in them. They were not in Him. They had not been baptized into Him. You know, there are only three verses in the Bible that say, in so many words, if this happens, then you are in Christ. And all three of those verses show us and plainly say that it is baptism that puts us into Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, as many of, of uh, you as were baptized into Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12:13, by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. And Galatians 3:27, as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So if you've been baptized with the Spirit, then you are in Christ, and He is in you, and you have hope. But Paul is reminding these Gentiles of the time when they had no hope because they had not Christ on the inside. They had not been baptized into him. And he said, At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope. Think about that. Having no hope and without God in the world. Now, let's be logical. If conversion is salvation, if you have salvation when you are converted, then sinners have hope of salvation because they have hope to be converted. Anyone out here in the world has a hope that God will call them to his family. And if that's true, then sinners have hope of salvation. But that is not true. Conversion is not salvation. You do not receive salvation when you are converted. What you receive is the hope of it. Paul said, put on the hope of salvation as a helmet on your head. When you receive Christ, you receive hope of eternal life. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Sinners in the world have hope that someday they'll be in Christ and Christ in them. And when they receive Christ, then they're no longer sinners, but they're saints, children of God, with hope. And that's the difference between being in Christ and not being in Christ, is that those who are in Christ have hope. Listen to these scriptures from Romans, the eighth chapter, where Paul discusses hope. Romans 8:24. we'll start there. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why doth he yet hope for? In other words, if you already have your salvation, what is your hope? If we already have what it is that we we are hoping for, we're not hoping for it anymore. You don't have to hope to be able to listen to me right now because you're already listening. You don't have to hope to be born the first time. Born of a mother, a physical birth. You're already born. If you already see something, if you already possess it, then you have no hope for it. You don't have any need for hope. But we are saved by hope. In other words, we have a hope that that impels us to obey and love God so that we'll be saved in the end. Without hope, without Christ in you, you'll never be saved. We are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And Jesus said, In your patience possess ye your souls. Because he knew that if you have this hope inside of you and is living, if you're obeying God, if you love your hope, John said, If you have that kind of hope living in you, you purify yourself even as he is pure. Because Christ on the inside, your hope on the inside, drives you to love and to obey the commandments of God. But what is your hope if you're already saved? I'm explaining this to you because I know that the better that you understand the truth, the brighter your hope of salvation becomes. And that is true because the better understanding you have of your father, the better your living will be, the more perfectly you'll please him. We want to understand the truth because we love our father and want not only our desires to be right, but we want our words and our actions to be right. As David very wisely prayed in the Psalms. He said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable with thee, O God. You don't want just to have a vague desire of somehow pleasing God, do you? That doesn't really satisfy a a child of God who loves his father. Don't you want to know how to direct your words to please him? Jesus said that some people were so satisfied with just having a vague desire of thinking they might please God somewhere along the way, that they could actually be killing God's people thinking to do God a service. You don't want to find yourself opposing Christ thinking or being told that you're serving Him by doing so. You don't want to be foolish and just speak evil of things that are difficult to understand. You want to understand what's right and what's wrong so that you can encourage the right and discourage the wrong. Your hope of salvation is your hope to be with Jesus forever. Jesus' personal presence is salvation. To be in his presence is salvation because he is salvation. Now, before I point out a couple of things about that, I want you to listen to what Jesus said eternal life is. In verse 3 of John 17, And this is life eternal, Jesus said, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We want to know our Father because to know him is life. We don't want to just hope that we're believing or wish that we're believing the right thing. We want to know what we're saying. We want to know what we're doing. And the better understanding you have of the words that God uses, such as salvation, sanctification, hope, the better understanding you have of that, the more in tune with God's mind you are, the better you understand His Word when He speaks to you. Now, I told you that Jesus' personal presence is salvation. That's what we see in the Scriptures do you remember when Jesus, as a baby, was taken to the uh, temple in Jerusalem by his mother and father shortly after his birth? In chapter 2 of Luke, this story is told. They went to the temple with their baby, and there was a man there in Jerusalem. And the same man, this is I'm going to read now from Luke 2, 25, The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it had been revealed ...to Simeon, by the Holy Ghost, that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah. And the Spirit of God led this old man to the temple... And when the parents brought the child Jesus into the temple to do for him after the custom of the law, this Simeon approached them, took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. I'm ready to die now, God, because my eyes have seen your salvation." When he looked on Jesus and was in his, the personal presence of this baby who was to be the Messiah of Israel, he had seen God's salvation. He was ready to go. And let me give you another example here in Luke 19, one that's very badly misunderstood by Christians almost all the time. In Luke 19, Jesus was passing through Jericho the last time before he went to Jerusalem to be crucified, and there was a short man named Zacchaeus. And he couldn't see over the taller people. He wanted to see Jesus, but he couldn't do it. So he ran ahead of the big crowd that surrounded Jesus and climbed up a sycamore tree so that he would be able to see Jesus when he passed by. And when Jesus drew near to Zacchaeus, he looked up in the tree and called his name. He said, Zacchaeus, Make haste, or hurry up and come down, for today I must abide at your house. I'm going to give you the privilege of feeding me and some of my friends to date. Now, this was an honor for Zacchaeus, and he knew it. And he made haste and came down and received Jesus into his house joyfully. And others saw it. They didn't like it because he didn't have the right occupation. He was a tax collector for the Romans. But Jesus explained in verse 9 why he went to Zacchaeus's house. Jesus said to him, This day is salvation come to this house for so much as he also, Zacchaeus also, is a son of Abraham. Jesus said that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Zacchaeus was of the house of Israel, therefore Jesus came to his house. Salvation came to his house. He was not at all saying that Zacchaeus had, quote, gotten saved. He was not saying that Zacchaeus was born again. Nobody had been born again, and nobody could be born again until after Jesus died. He was saying, I have come to Zacchaeus' house because he's a son of Abraham and the children of Abraham are the people to whom my father sends me. He was merely saying, he was merely explaining to the people who didn't like him going to a publican's house why he had gone there. He had gone there, salvation had gone there because he was a child of Abraham. Now, one more thing I want to point out here before our time runs out on this last edition of uh, last session on what must I do to be saved, is that to be saved means to receive your inheritance. All of God's children are joint heirs with Christ, but we have an inheritance laid up in heaven. And when you receive your inheritance, you'll find that that inheritance is a glorified body and a position of honor in God's kingdom forever. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15:50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You have not inherited your inheritance from God while you are in flesh and blood. While you are in this natural body, you are not saved. You have not received your salvation, which is your hope, and is also your inheritance, while you're walking around on earth. The Bible says he's going to beautify the meek with salvation. That means a beautiful, glorified body. You are not saved so long as you are in the flesh. As long as your flesh and blood attends your, or covers your soul, you have not inherited in the kingdom of God. Jesus had not inherited what God was going to give him when he rose from the dead. He said, a, a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have. He had to return to his father in order to receive that glorification. And when we're glorified, we will, have been, uh, uh, we will have received our inheritance with Christ. In Romans 8, verse 13, Paul wrote, If you live after the flesh, I know we have fleshly bodies, but if we live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, who's Paul talking to when he said, if you're led by the Spirit? He's talking to those who have the Spirit. He couldn't be talking to sinners. He's writing to the faithful in Rome. If you live according to the Spirit that God has given to you, if you walk by that Spirit, you will live forever. If you choose, however, not to obey the Spirit, but to walk after the flesh that covers your soul, you will die. And finally, let's listen to Paul as he writes to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 16, because regardless of how many other scriptures that we may use to answer the question, what must I do to be saved, this sums it up. Galatians five sixteen. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you fulfill the lust of the flesh, you'll die. If you walk after the Spirit of God... You will live. And the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, never really gets any more complicated than that.
0: He's the fragrance of heaven, the man of unleavened. He's the song
1: of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. This concludes our series on what must I do to be saved. The answers God gives to that most important question really shouldn't be expected to satisfy our flesh or tickle our ears. They are of God. They're meant for our healing. Sometimes they are sweet. Sometimes they taste more like medicine. But His Word is true, and if we take it in, it will save us. It's our hope here that through this time we've spent together, you have been enlightened by the word of truth that you have heard. He's my peace when I'm troubled,
0: my sight when I am blind, when confronted by temptation. Strengthen Him, I always find.